This episode of the Royal Ramble is dedicated to the memory of Hossein Khosro Ali Vaziri, better known to wrestling fans as the Iron Sheik. Attention all intelligent wrestling fans, and especially that jabroni Hulk Hogan. You heard it right at the start. The episode of the Royal Ramble is all about the Iron Sheik, the man, the legend, who passed away earlier this week. My name is Blaine the Brain, and you're in store for a special one today. I have a UFC review coming at you later on, but first, I'm going to talk about the life and career of the Iron Sheik. In fact, let's not waste any more time. Away we go. Uh, Khosrow Vasari, Sheikh Alahani, the Iron Sheik. You, you've heard, have you ever heard the expression, man speak with forked tongue? You know, Jean-Mean, you're an intelligent American. Thank you've you. been in the library. You read about a lot of different countries, a lot of different athletes. I just want to ask you a very simple question. I don't care you are Jew-American or I don't care you are all-American boy, but I'd like to ask you a very simple question. Sure, go right Can ahead. you tell me... Very random and macrotondo. What can a Pan American band, what Olympic band, what the AAU band, what, the, what, what, what international compete they had? Can you tell me anyone? Well, I would have to go back to the library to check that out and go back to the record. What do you mean you have to go to the library? You want to tell me? Are you done? Are you a fool? Macrotondo, very random. Every intelligent American know. Just like my manager, Mr. Blasi, said, referee that Uncle Rufus was your cousin or whatever. That's because you're cheating us. No, you don't believe the uh, Mr. Blasi, you don't believe the Nikola Volkov. I'm sure you believe Macrotondo. You believe uh, Barry Vando. For sure you are another all-American Jew, man. Well, thank you very much. Very good. Thank you, gentlemen. Hossein Khosro Ali Vaziri was born on September 9, 1942 in Damgan, Iran. His family was working class and had little money and no running water. His actual birth date is in question because while his passport reads March 15th, he celebrated on September 9th because his family would alternate between the Gregorian calendar and the Solar Hergiri calendar. He fell in love with amateur wrestling very early and spent some time as a bodyguard for Shah Muhammad Reza Pahlavi. When his idol, amateur wrestler and Olympic gold medal winner Golam Reza Takti was mysteriously found dead, Vaziri started to fear for his own life and decided to emigrate to the United States in the late 1960s. He became assistant coach of two U.S. Olympic teams in the 1970s, and later became assistant coach for Team USA's amateur wrestling team at the 1972 Olympic Games in Munich. Following those Olympics, Vaziri joined Vern Gagne's training camp, learning to be a professional wrestler. He was in the same class as Ric Flair and trained under Billy Robinson, eventually working for Gagne's American Wrestling Association. He also worked as a trainer, teaching future legends such as Ricky Steamboat, Greg Gagne, and Jim Brunzel. He initially started as a babyface, but it was eventually suggested that he work as a heel and adopt a similar persona to that of the Sheik, Ed Farhat. Vaziri ended up changing his look entirely to go with the gimmick. 
He shaved his head bald, grew a mustache, and added wrestling boots with the toes curled up, which, according to Vaziri, was the idea of Jimmy Snuka. Soon after, he introduced the Persian clubs, a very common sporting tool in his native Iran, and he would challenge American wrestlers to see if they could do as many swings as he could. Under the name Great Hossein Arab, he won his first title, the Canadian Tag Team Championship, with partner the Texas Outlaw. He then wrestled a tour of Japan in 1978, competing in a match with the late Antonio Inoki. He caught the attention of the World Wrestling Federation in 1979, and he won the first ever Battle Royal in Madison Square Garden, earning a shot at then-WWF champion Bob Backlund, who defeated Vaziri after 30 minutes of grueling action. Prior to leaving the WWF in 1980, he feuded with such greats as Bruno Sammartino and Chief Jay Strongbow. From there, he moved to Charlotte, wrestling for Jim Crockett Promotions. He feuded with Jim Brunzel over the Mid-Atlantic heavyweight title, eventually winning the belt in May of 1980. After a six-month title run, he dropped it to Ricky Steamboat in a Falls Count Anywhere match in November of the same year. For the next couple of years, he feuded with the likes of Blackjack Mulligan and Dusty Rhodes before leaving the NWA in 1981. Between 1981 and 1983, he wrestled for various promotions such as Mid-South Wrestling, Championship Wrestling from Florida, and Georgia Championship Wrestling before returning to the WWF in 1983 and challenging Bob Backlund for the WWF title. I first became familiar with the Iron Sheik through archive footage. One of the first wrestling tapes I ever got, I think it was a Christmas gift, featured a compilation of a few classic matches, one of which was his championship match against Backlund. I was completely mesmerized by his look and overall persona, and even the crowd reactions he would receive. He was the ultimate bad guy. I remember having the two set thumb wrestlers with him and Hogan. He was the guy that people loved to hate, but at the time, it was really only hate. The WWF was big on xenophobia angles at the time, and he really capitalized on the concept and would do everything he could think of to insult or get under the skin of American wrestling fans. It clearly worked, and very effectively. But what surprised me the most is how dominant he was in his performance against Backlund. I believe Backlund only got in two or three offensive maneuvers all match long. I would later discover that Backlund was working through a neck injury, and that Sheik capitalized, cranking back on Backlund's injured neck as he had him trapped in his dreaded camel clutch with his manager the hated Fred Blassie cheering him on. Backlund refused to submit, so his manager, Arnold Scotland, ended up throwing the towel in on his behalf, and the Sheik was crowned the new WWF heavyweight champion in a moment that truly shocked the wrestling world. His reign of terror didn't last too long, though, as about a month later, he was scheduled for a rematch against Backlund, who had to pull out due to legitimate injury, only to be replaced by a young up-and-comer named Hulk Hogan. Hogan defeated the Sheik with his big atomic leg drop and the Hulkamania era was born as the WWF transitioned into a more cartoony style of professional wrestling, which ended up being one of the most memorable periods of time in their history. The Iron Sheik stated in later interviews that AWA promoter Vern Gagne had supposedly offered him $100,000 to break the leg of Hogan in the championship match and bring the WWF title with him to the AWA, though that claim was disputed by Gania's son Greg. The Sheik later engaged in a bitter rivalry with Sergeant Slaughter, which culminated in a boot camp rules match. In the mid-80s, the Sheik tried his hand at tag team wrestling, teaming with Nikolai Volkov and achieving their greatest success by capturing the WWF tag team titles from the U.S. Express at the first WrestleMania event in 1985. 
He became more of a mainstream star and appeared in Cindy Lauper's Goonies Are Good Enough video, and his likeness was also used in the 1980 cartoon Hulk Hogan's Rockin' Wrestling and voiced by American actor Aaron Kincaid. In 1986, Slick was brought into the company and took over the managerial duties of Fred Blassie's clients, including The Sheik and Volkoff, as Blassie's career was winding down. The following year, The Sheik and one of his on-screen rivals, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, were pulled over by New Jersey State Police while en route to a WWF event. The police discovered that Duggan was under the influence of marijuana while Sheik was high on cocaine. The drug bust was bad enough, but the other scandal was that two on-screen enemies were spotted together, which was a huge no-no at the time. The television feud was scrapped, Duggan was temporarily released, and The Sheik was placed on a one-year probation. The Sheik briefly returned to the company in early 1988. He cut a series of promos challenging then-WWF champion the Macho Man Randy Savage, but it never ended up resulting in a match, and the angle was soon dropped as Sheik departed from the company once again. At this time, his physique and in-ring mobility had noticeably changed, and not really for the better. For the next couple of years, the Sheik wrestled between WCCW, World Wrestling Council in Puerto Rico, and the AWA. He returned to the NWA at the start of 1989 and wrestled there until 1991. He feuded early on with Sting and Ricky Steamboat and then wrestled his final match in the company on January 26, 1991 against the Junkyard Dog and then returned to the WWF in March of that year as Colonel Mustafa, an Iraqi sympathizer, aligning himself with former on-screen rival Sergeant Slaughter. Following Slaughter's face turn after SummerSlam 91, the Sheik dropped down to mid-card status, often losing matches to some of the company's top babyfaces. He left the company in May of 92, but had made sporadic appearances for the next couple of decades. During this time, he managed the Sultan along with another former rival, Bob Backlund. He also won the gimmick battle royal at WrestleMania 17, and was then inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame in 2005. He made a number of appearances over the years in television, film, and radio, including Kenny vs. Spenny, Howard Stern, Jerry Springer, Robot Chicken, and The Eric Andre Show. Even after retirement, he was still living the gimmick. In his personal life, he was a Shia Muslim and a soldier in the Imperial Iranian Army. He married an American woman, Carol Peterson, in March of 1976, and his best man was Mean Gene Okerlund, or Gene Mean as the Sheik would often call him. He had three daughters. His oldest, Marissa Gian, was tragically murdered by her boyfriend, Charles Warren Reynolds, in May of 2003. She was 26 years old. Following Marissa's death, Vaziri fell back into substance abuse. He entered rehab but was unsuccessful in his path to recovery as there was an employee who was allegedly sneaking in cocaine for him. His wife ended up leaving him in 2007 after failed attempts to try and get him to quit. She returned two years later on the condition that he completely cut ties with his friend who was enabling his habit. The Sheik had a documentary about his life released in 2014. It was titled The Sheik. He was a man that wrestling fans loved to hate, but he seemed to have the respect and admiration of several of his peers, including those who entered the business after him. He passed away in Fayetteville, Georgia on June 7, 2023. He was 81 years old. What a life and what a career. I don't think there will ever be anyone like him again. He was what they call a generational talent. Generational talent seems to be a very popular term these days, not only in wrestling, but sports in general, including mixed martial arts. 
It's probably a term that would fit UFC bantamweight champion Amanda Nunez to a T. She headlined a great UFC event just last night in Vancouver. It opened up with some middleweight action as Eric Anders took on Marc-Andre Berriot. It was a pretty even contest, but both of these guys came out swinging right out of the gate, clearly aiming to finish. That didn't happen, but it was a good fight nonetheless. Berrio got more aggressive in the final round. He really picked up his offense, which earned him the unanimous decision. The featherweights took center stage next. It was Nate Landwehr against Dan Ige. Ige landed a huge left hook at the end of round one. He also scored a knockdown in the second, but again close to the end of the round and unfortunately didn't have enough time to work, so Landwehr was saved by the buzzer yet again. Near the end of the third, Ige delivered a huge elbow strike, which secured him the unanimous decision. Mike Malott versus Adam Fugit was up next in welterweight action. Malott landed a body kick early, which set the tone for the rest of the fight. He later executed a hip throw takedown and then a one-two punch combo, which dropped Fugit to his knees, allowing Malott to swarm on him with a guillotine choke to pick up the submission, leading the Canadian talent to a clean sweep and main card victories. Second from the top was the lightweight battle between Charles Oliveira and Benil Dariush. Oliveira spent much of the first round trying to bait Dariush to the ground. Dariush didn't fall into the trap, though, but Oliveira proved to be just as effective on his feet. He landed some big shots and then mounted Darius with some ground and pound to pick up the TKO. The bantamweight title fight was the main event. Amanda Nunez defended against Irene Aldana, who was subbing in for Juliana Pena. Aldana missed a head kick in the earlier round, allowing Nunez to get an easy takedown, and the champ just dominated from there. I believe she may have landed just about every attempted strike, including some stiff body shots from a full mount position in the final round, and she retained via unanimous decision, but the bigger story was after the fight. Nunez said with this win, she had tied Anderson Silva's record for most successful title defenses, and she officially announced her retirement, leaving her gloves and belts in the cage, saying that she wants to enjoy family life. As a fan, I'm kind of disappointed that we won't get Pena versus Nunez 3, but she's had a hell of a career, and she's one of the few that can walk away on a high note. So that's a wrap. There will probably not be a new episode next week due to Father's Day, and speaking of, I wish all the listeners out there who are dads a happy early Father's Day. I will be back to review the Forbidden Door event the following week, and also preview Money in the Bank. Until then, I leave you with an ABC-ya! Shh.